Welcome to the Tide Run Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Bethay, coming to you today from the TVA studios to discuss the most sacred Hawks timeline of all time, one in which they made it to the Eastern Conference Finals and had the most successful postseason in Atlanta Hawks history. If you're new to the show, please follow us on social media, Facebook and Twitter. You can also email us, titlerunsports at gmail.com. And please make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform so you don't miss any of our weekly shows. So with the Hawks coming off the most successful postseason in Atlanta Hawks history, I wanted to briefly touch on a few trends, stats, and facts that you may not have realized from this postseason, and then spend the rest of the podcast talking about Atlanta's plan for the offseason, John Collins' contract, and ways we can upgrade this roster. So I just wanted to start off by giving you a few of the individual stats that really stood out to me from Atlanta's postseason run. First of all, Trey Young led the entire playoffs in total assists with 152, which was nine more than the next player, and he only played in 16 games. I believe the next player was Drew Holiday, who had played in three more games because of the injury Trey sustained in the series with the Bucks. Trey was second in all the playoffs in free throws made. He was second in total points scored. Paul George led Trey by 60 total points, but he played three more games. And this is the big one. Trey led the entire postseason in clutch time points, which the NBA defines as any game that is within five points in the last five minutes of the fourth quarter or overtime. So Trey led all players in clutch time points. And listen to this. Trey shot 96% from the free throw line in clutch time, 23 of 24, which is insane. Trey finished fifth for total three-pointers made in the postseason. Granted, he did not shoot them at a higher percentage, shot about 31%. Bogey finished right ahead of him at fourth with total three-pointers made in the playoffs with 47. And Bogey also, we know, struggled with his shot for about two weeks when he was dealing with that knee injury. So his percentages ended up being in the low 30s as well. Clint Capella tied for third in total blocks, 19. And this is listen to this, y'all. Kevin Herter tied for fifth with 17 total blocks, tied with Joel Embiid. Now, Herter did get six additional games, but that's crazy. Overall, the Hawks finished 12th in offensive rating in the playoffs at a 108.8. And remember, that's points per 100 possessions. That's how it's done. They finished 11th in true shooting percentage, which is one of the big things that we saw from the Hawks in the playoffs. They simply did not shoot the ball consistently. They finished only 10th in three-point percentage at 34%, which is down from their season total, which is closer to 36%. And overall, they just finished in the middle of the pack in defensive rating of with a defensive rating of 110. Last but most importantly, the Hawks actually finished the playoffs with a winning record of 10 and 8, which is rare for a team that loses in the uh, conference finals. But they actually, because they got that five-game victory over the New York Knicks, ended up having a winning record in the playoffs. But when you look back at the playoffs run for the Hawks, it was surprising. It was fun. And I think the biggest thing that they showed, I've said this before, is the Hawks had a superior depth and B, superior mental toughness. And I said this, that I thought the two mentally toughest teams in the playoffs were the Phoenix Suns and the Atlanta Hawks. And I still think that with the Hawks being able to battle through so many injuries, hostile environments, and overcoming all the expectations on their way to just about sneaking their way into the NBA Finals. And and it's just really hard to think what could have happened if Trey doesn't step on a referee's foot in Game 3. 
Hawks are most likely going to win game three. You're up seven with Trey going nuts. And then he gets the injury. The Hawks go cold in the fourth quarter. Chris Middleton goes off, and the rest is history. If the Hawks just get that game, you're probably looking at at least a game seven with Trey on the mend. And who knows what happens. But, man, it's just hard not to say what if. And that's not taking anything away from the season. Milwaukee, all around, I thought had the better team. But it's really hard not to think about what might have happened if we had Trey healthy the entire season. Either way, the Hawks now face an offseason where they will enter with high, high expectations and I think a very, very realistic chance of actually returning to the Eastern Conference Finals. Because when you look about it, everybody when you look at it, everybody knows that the big, big team to beat in the East is going to be the Brooklyn Nets because of the three superstars they have, which is going to be probably one of the best offenses we've ever seen in basketball if they're all healthy. But beyond that, is there anything that really scares you? Does Milwaukee scare you if the Hawks are at full strength with a healthy Trey and a healthy DeAndre? Philly, you've already beaten. Miami looks like they could be set to lose some pieces with Duncan Robinson free agency and Tyler Hero regressing and Kelly Olenek's free agent also. I mean, is there really any team besides Brooklyn that scares you? I mean, it is very conceivable that the Hawks could be right back in the same position next year with just average health and maybe a little bit of luck getting the right seeds. So, with that said... Here are six items that I believe should be in the Hawks' off-season to-do list, some of which they have already completed. Number one, lock up Nate McMillan as your head coach, which the Hawks reportedly did yesterday in removing the interim tag from him and giving him a four-year contract. They have not released the details of the contract. My guess is probably somewhere in the six to eight million range because that's typically what coaches that win championships get. And Nate is not a championship coach, but he has 16 years of veteran experience, and he did just come off a big playoff run, which I'm sure elevated his price tag. So I would bet that we find out that that price tag is somewhere in the 6 to probably $7.5 million a year range, whenever that comes out. Second on my list, resign or replace John Collins. My preference, as I've stated, is to resign John Collins, and I'll go into some detail later on about what that should cost and how much we should be willing to pay. Number three, re-sign or replace Lou Williams. The backup point guard spot for the Hawks has just been a gaping hole. Going back to Trey's rookie year, we had Jeremy Lin manning the spot until he played too well and we traded him so that we could be bad. And then last year, we mixed in a bunch of G League guys in that spot and were just absolutely horrible there for most of the year until we got Jeff Teague, who solidified that spot at the end of the year. This year, we started with a often injured, rarely effective Rajon Rondo, who was then replaced at midseason by Lou Williams, who really provided a massive upgrade to that spot. And with Williams getting up there in age and his mid-30s, the question is simply, do you re-sign Lou and run it back? Or do you try to get younger and possibly even upgrade that position? But either way, it was evident that the impact of the backup point guard is huge for this team. And when you have a second unit that's got the kind of depth for the, that the Hawks have... You have some flexibility there because you don't necessarily need a point guard that comes off and get buckets, although, hey, you will always take a bucket getter. But with the second unit, the next year could feature Kevin Herter, Onyeke Okongwu, and Cam Reddish as guys that can knock down shots and, and provide vertical spacing in the case of Okongwu. It's okay to go get a guy that's a facilitator if he can do other things well. For example, if you go get someone like a TJ McConnell, he's got to provide great defense and facilitate. He doesn't necessarily have to get you buckets. Someone like a Chris Dunn is a great defensive point guard. He's not going to score. So if you're going to allow Chris Dunn to slide into the Lou Williams spot, 
he's got to be really good at facilitating, which is something he hasn't shown that he can do. So, again, I'll go over my thoughts on what the Hawks should do at point guard in just a moment. But you either need to re-sign Lou Williams or replace him with a competent NBA backup point guard. Number four, and these, and this would be more of a luxury than an actual need, add one more big body to the front court rotation. One of the things that showed up in both the Milwaukee series and the Philadelphia series are those are teams that have so much length in their starting lineup that they create real problems for the Hawks, who are a very undersized team. Capella is a smaller center at six foot ten, about two hundred forty pounds. Okongwu is six foot nine, and then when they're not on the floor, you have John Collins playing the five at six foot nine, about two hundred thirty-five pounds. Those are small, small centers by NBA standards. So, do you go out and get a big body? And we'll go through some names of who they could look at that just provides six fouls and a little bit more resistance against guys like a Brook Lopez or a Joel Embiid when you get into the playoffs because. That's the time that you need those kind of guys. It's like what people used to do against Shaq. They would always get the one goon who would sit on their bench and would get in there to bang on Shaq whenever you'd get in the playoffs. So do the Hawks need to go look for a guy like that? Number five, extend Trey Young. Go ahead and give him the extension. We already know he's worth it. I mean, God, if there was any question about Trey Young being an elite player, an elite point guard, he squashed all that with this postseason. As we just went through the stats, he had a phenomenal postseason, one of the best postseason debuts in the history of the NBA. Go ahead and extend him. And I'm sure that they will write in what they refer to as the Rose Rule language, which will allow him to get a Supermax contract, which is a higher percentage of the salary cap and offers a fifth year at that higher rate if he was to make the All-NBA team. Which, after not making the All-Star team this year, I don't see him missing out on the All-Star game again next year. He should have made it this year. But it is very difficult to make the All-NBA team at the guard spot with just guys like Steph, Dame, and Luka taking up so many of the spots. And then guys like Kyrie Irving, James Harden. There's just a lot of bodies there. And so, believe it or not, it's actually better for the Hawks if Trey doesn't make the All-NBA team. Because if he does, you're breaking a whole lot more bread to keep him here in Atlanta, which is going to happen either way. Trey's not leaving. Number six, this is probably the most important. Hawks need to get healthy. Cam Reddish needs to come back with a fully recovered Achilles. Trey needs to come back with a fully healed foot. Bogdanovich needs to come back with a fully healed knee. And we need to get DeAndre Hunter back with a fully healthy knee as well. So with that plan laid out, let me rewind to points two and three, which placing John Collins and resigning or replacing Lou Williams. Backup point guard, as we discussed, is really a vital role in the NBA. Um, the teams that are good have good backup point guards, guys that can do their role well, whether that be facilitating or getting buckets. A lot of times the backup point guard now is the guy that comes off and guns and gets buckets, which is fine. But this is one of the best markets for backup point guards in a long time. And the Hawks have a lot of good options depending on what you want. So I came up with a list of several names divided into three different tiers. So in the first tier, I listed four guys that I referred to as expensive and or overqualified. These are guys that were starters this year and either are older guys that are very, very expensive and or may not want to become backups yet, or younger guys that are probably going to be too expensive to be a backup to Trey Young for the Hawks. So that list includes Kyle Lowry, Mike Conley, Dennis Schroeder, and Lonzo Ball. So Conley and Lowry are both making over $30 million a year, and they're both still starting quality point guards. So it's hard to see either one of them coming here, taking a pay cut, and then being a backup going from playing, you know, 35 minutes a game to playing 
22. It's just hard to see. Um, so those are pipe dreams. Great if by some reason, great if for some reason Kyle Lowry decides he wants to come mentor Trey Young. I'll love that. Every Hawks fan would, but it's probably not very realistic. Dennis Schroeder, who I had one guy on Reddit say he would give his left nut to keep away from Atlanta. And I think a lot of Hawks fans share that, especially the way he shrank and disappeared in the playoffs. Um, but Schroeder is still a, still a good point guard. Uh, I don't think he's going to come to Atlanta to be a backup. He's been fighting to become a starting point guard. And he reportedly turned down 4-84 and 84 from the Lakers. So if he's turning that down, there ain't no way Atlanta's affording him. And the one that's interesting to me that would be one of my top choices is Lonzo Ball. Lonzo being a six foot six guard that's got an improved jump shot. He's about a 37, 38% jump shooter from three the last couple of years. Very, very good defender. Good passer. Can't create his own shot, though. He's a guy that would be a great guy to run your second unit, and he can play alongside Trey because he can defend two or three positions and can you can hide Trey on whoever the worst shooter is in the other team, which we which the Hawks were able to do with that throughout the playoffs. So Lonzo would be a great choice. I doubt he's coming here to be a backup to Trey. Uh, most 23-year-olds going to free agency aren't going to look for a spot on the bench. <laughs> so he's going to go find starter money and starter minutes elsewhere. But I just wanted to mention that he is on this list as somebody that I would love to see here. Now, the second list, the second category I put on here was the best fit. And I put this as people that are probably going to be in the 8 to $15 million range that would actually be willing to take a role as backups and would actually make sense for the Hawks. So... Guys on this list include Spencer Dinwiddie, who is a perennial six-man, one of the best six-men in the NBA. Uh, great scoring point guard. That would be unbelievable to have off your bench and could play alongside Trey. Derrick Rose, who after what we watched him do to our Hawks in the New York Knicks series, I think a lot of Hawks fans are like, um, yeah, I'll take two years of that off our bench. <laughs> Lou Williams, who is already here but is a free agent and he could be resigned. Devontae Graham, who the Hawks – inexplicably traded away on draft night, and that's a trade that's not looking great right now because you could have had your backup point guard right here in-house. Um, he's had a couple of really good years for the Hornets. And then Reggie Jackson, who a lot of people tell me is going to get a big contract and go be a starter somewhere because of his awesome postseason where you know he scored 18 points a game, was just phenomenal from three-point range, and was a big part of the Clippers' success. My counter to that is Reggie Jackson has already been overpaid once in his career by the Detroit Pistons, and they gave up on him and cut him, and this year with the Clippers, in 47 starts, he averaged 10 points per game. That's not exactly starting point guard production. And the other issue you have at Reggie Jackson is that point guard is one of the deepest positions in the NBA, and even horrible teams like OKC and Cleveland and, and Minnesota, even they have point guards they like. So with Reggie Jackson, the issue with him becoming a starting point guard is, A, he didn't really produce like one, and B, there's aren't a lot of open spots for starting point guards. And, you know, there's a couple teams that are looking for him, like the New York Knicks or the Los Angeles Lakers, if they don't re-sign Schroeder. But, I mean, is he an upgrade over what they have there? I mean, maybe, but I don't think they're going to pay prime dollar for him. So, anyways, Reggie Jackson's on this list. Pick pick one of these out of a hat. I would, oh my gosh, I would love to have Derrick Rose here if that's possible. And Rose made, I think, somewhere around $8 million this past year, $7 million. That's what him and Lou Williams made. If you want to bring them here for – Two with a player option in the second year and pay them six to ten million dollars. Boy, sign me up for either one of those. I would love that. I would lean towards Roche because he's two years younger at 32, and Lou Williams is 34, and we all know Father Time is undefeated. But man, give me either one of those. I love Spencer Dinwiddie, but he is coming off an ACL injury and he probably will be more expensive. 
He just opted out of a $12 million a year player option with the Nets, so you know that's probably his baseline starting at 12. Probably looking for somewhere closer in the 15-18 range. So he might be priced out of the Hawks price range. So he might be out of the Hawks price range. But he'd be another great fit. But these are all guys that would be high-level backup point guards slash low-level starters, guys that could step in and fill in for Trey, maybe even close games alongside Trey. And then in the last category is the bargain barrel. These are players that aren't necessarily bad players. They're just players that aren't going to cost you a lot of money. So these are guys like Austin Rivers, Ish Smith, Patty Mills, Dante Exum, and TJ McConnell. When I posted this list on Reddit, man, there was a lot of love there and on Facebook for TJ McConnell. And I did not know TJ McConnell had so many fans. But essentially what a lot of people said is he is disruptive on defense and he's a decent mid-range shooter and finisher. Now, my one counter to that was McConnell is a little bit redundant, in my opinion, with Chris Dunn, because Chris Dunn is a defensive-minded point guard that can't and or won't shoot, and McConnell's not a good shooter. He's like a 31% three-point shooter. So I do feel like if you get him, he's a little bit redundant with Chris Dunn. That's hard to say. But McConnell is a better offensive player than Dunn, although he's not quite as elite on the defensive end as as Dunn is with Dunn's length and tenacity. But I, McConnell got a lot of love, and that just surprised me. And there was also a lot of love, surprisingly, for Ish Smith as a good penetrating guard, which is something the Hawks lacked. Another guy that can get in the lane in their second unit. So that's, that's the list. And, man, like I said, that's a lot of good options. That is 14 players that if you brought any of them in, you would feel like you are really solid at the point guard position. And that's assuming Dunn opts in, which I think he probably will because I don't know that he's going to get better than a $5 million contract on a year where he didn't play hardly at all. So here's the one downside. If you choose to run it back with Lou Williams on a one- or two-year deal, and more than likely it would be a two-year deal with a second year as a player option. That's how you do it with veterans. If you do that, you're missing out on a great market for backup point guards because next year your options are a lot more limited with the only realistic guys being guys like Terry Rozier, Ricky Rubio, Patrick Beverly, and Marcus Smart. Now, any of those guys are good options, but you just have a lot less of them. And so, yes, Steph Curry and Chris Paul are also free agents, but come on, y'all. I mean, seriously. So, that's some thoughts on how to address that issue. As long as the Hawks bring in someone on this list of people I just said, really any of them, it's fine. And I don't think this is a position the Hawks should spend more than, at most, $10 million on. Now, if Cal Lowry wants to come for 15, okay, well, that's something you consider. But let's be honest. Realistically, those guys in that second category, if you can get one of them for 8 to 10, I think you've really done well. And even if you give him 12, you think about it this way. Tony Snell's a free agent. He's leaving you. You're replacing Tony Snell with a guy that's going to have a lot more impact on your team over the course of the season. So think about it that way. Even if you end up paying as much as 12 or slightly higher than that for a guy like a Spencer Dinwiddie, you know is going to have a huge impact on winning on your team. So with that said, the next thing to talk about is what to do with John Collins. So I put together a graphic that's going to go up on our social media platforms in the next couple of days about John Collins' contract and comparing his production in his contract year, which is, of course, this year, to the production of other bigs that are roughly his age, um, you know, guys that are under 28, and what they did in their contract year. So in contract year, I mean that the year they were offered a contract. So in some cases, the guys got offered a contract two years before the contract went into effect. Like Giannis Antetokounmpo, he got offered his contract in 2015, but it didn't actually go into effect until 2017. 
So I counted 2015 as his actually contract year because those are the stats on which the contract was based. So let me run through a few of these guys in their contract years. Bam Adebayo, who got a max contract from the Miami Heat for five years, $163 million. In his contract year, which was last year, 2020, 16 points, 10 rebounds, 20.1 PER, and 60% true shooting percentage. Julius Randle, who got his contract in 2019 from the New York Knicks. His 2018 contract year, 21 points, 8 rebounds, 21 PER, 60% true shooting. His contract is 3-62, and 62, so roughly a little over 20 million a year. DeMontis Sabonis, four years, $77 million. He got that contract after the 18 season, and his stats coming off that season, that, that was the year before he became an All-Star. 14 points, 9 rebounds, 20.8 PER, which is, again, player efficiency rating, and a 60 true shooting percentage. And when you look at DeMontis Sabonis now as a two-time All-Star, you realize that he's only making about $19 million a year. You're like, yeah, that guy's underpaid. Giannis Antetokounmpo, coming off his 2015 season, he averaged 16.9 points per game, 7.7 rebounds. And with those good but not great numbers, he got a contract from Milwaukee for four years and $100 million. But remember, Giannis is already at this point turning into an elite defender, and his PR was an astronomical 31.6. This is before he made his first All-Star game. That came the next year, and he had a true shooting percentage of 56.6. Anthony Davis got his max contract in 2015, five years, $127 million. And that year he got, he was already an All-Star, 24 points, 10 rebounds, a PR of 30.8, 59% true shooting. And he was already a megastar when he got his super max extension. Pascal Siakam got his max extension after the championship season for the Raptors in 2018. And the year before he actually made the All-NBA team in 2019, in that championship season, he averaged 16.9 points per game, 6.9 rebounds, a PER of 18.7, a true shooting percentage of 63, and one most improved player. They rewarded him with a contract of four years, $130 million. And then Nikola Jokic, who was offered his Max extension after the 2016 season. He averaged 18.5 points, 10.7 rebounds, I think seven assists. I don't have it here in front of me. With a PER of 24 and a true shooting percentage of 60%. Again, this is before making his first all-star appearance, but they could see what he was becoming and went ahead and gave him a contract that actually now looks like a bargain as he just won a league MVP and led his team to the conference finals the year before that. And then here's the one that's going to make you roll your eyes. Chris Stapps Przingis with a max contract at five years, $158 million. More than the five years, $147 million that Nikola Jokic got. More than the four years, $130 million that Pascal Siakam got. More than the $5 million, $127 million that Anthony Davis got. And more than the four years, $100 million that Giannis Antetokounmpo got. And these are all guys on their second contracts. Giannis has since signed a Supermax. Ethan Davis got a new deal with the Lakers. These are all guys on their second contracts. Chris Stapps Przingis leads this list with a five-year, $158 million contract. Wow. Coming off an all-star season in 2018 where he averaged 22.7 points, six rebounds a game, 20.4 PR with a 53.9% true shooting. And he did actually look like he was ascending to be an All-NBA type player before tearing his ACL and then missing all the 2019 season. So, where does John Collins fall in that packing order? If we look at some of these players got going into their contract years, most of these teams are smart and paid these players before they really blew up. 
Like we mentioned, Pascal Siakam got paid before he became an All-NBA player. Nikola Jokic got paid before he became an All-Star and MVP. Giannis got paid before he became an All-Defense, All-Star, MVP-level player. Julius Randle got paid before he became an All-NBA-level player. All these guys got paid early, with the exception of Bam Adebayo, who got paid after an All-NBA caliber season and a finals run. But all these guys got paid before they really blew up. So the idea here with John Collins is, so it's important to remember that when you pay John Collins, you're paying him for what you think he will be in ages 23 through 27, which is the prime of his career. And you're projecting what you think he's going to be. Is he going to be another Julius Randle? Probably not. I don't think he's got that kind of shot creation and playmaking ability. Is he going to be Anthony Davis? Well, no. We know he's not going to be Anthony Davis. Could he be Pascal Siakam? Well, yeah, on the offensive end, that's conceivable. Now, he's not going to be the kind of defensive stopper Siakam is, and that's going to be one of the knocks on him, is that he's not an elite defensive player at power forward, which is an important defensive position. And that's fine, but then as a offensive power forward, you got to be able to create your own shot. And John can basically only create his own shot in direct post-ups. So if you dump him the ball on the block or in the mid-post, he can get a bucket. But anywhere else on the floor... If you give John Collins the ball three-point line, other than pulling up, there's not a lot he can do. Whereas a guy like Julius Randle can create his own shot off the dribble. Anthony Davis can create his own shot off the dribble. He can post up. Pascal Siakam is a very, very good slasher. Chris Stapps Porzingis, used to post up, can get his shot off in traffic, has a good step back. And I think the two things that's going to separate John from the guys that are the top, top tier of the pay scale for power forwards is – his, ability, his inability to create his own shot, and the fact that he's not a defensive stopper, although he has improved tremendously on the defensive end of the floor. So what's fair for John? Well, if I'm the Hawks, I'm starting with 4-25, and 25, which puts John somewhere right in the middle of this. So you're paying him more than what Julius Randle got offered, ironically, and Julius Randle, and we now know, is grossly overpaid. But he was coming off a 21-9 and nine year for a team that – or 21-8 and eight year for a team that wasn't good in the New Orleans Pelicans – and I'll say this, winning is more important than production when it comes to contract talks. If you're part of a winning team, even if you didn't have a great statistical year, the fact that you're part of a winning team gets you paid. It just happens that way. You get the rub. It's how guys like Contavious Caldwell-Pope get overpaid. It's how guys like Reggie Jackson get overpaid, which he's going to get overpaid this year again for the second time in his career. So with John, understanding that he gets a bump for the fact that he was on a Eastern Conference Finals team that overcheats, and he was one of the cornerstones of that team. Now, granted, at times, John Collins was our fourth best player, but it doesn't matter. He was a starter and a key component of that team, and he's going to get paid for that. So, again, I'm thinking a realistic offer is probably starting with 4 and 25, but with Collins being a restricted free agent, other teams can give him offer sheets with a max number on it. And just so you know, the NBA's max contracts are worth 25% of the salary cap for players that have this, the amount of experience that John has. So John is in year four. So players that are in that age bracket or that experience bracket, the maximum amount that you can get is 25% of the salary cap. And as you get more years of experience, the percentage of the salary cap that you can get goes up. You make an all-NBA team, the percentage of the salary cap that you can get goes up. That's what those super maxes are. So the projected salary cap for 2022 is $112 million, meaning that 25% of that for John Collins would be $28 million a year. So... If you paid John Collins $28 million a year for four years, you would be paying him less than Chris Porzingis, less than Nikola Jokic, less than Pascal Siakam, less than Anthony Davis, more than DeMondis Sabonis, and more than Julius Randle got on their second contracts. 
when you say it like that, it doesn't sound quite as crazy. It just doesn't. Do I think John is a max player? Probably not. But again, the thing is, you can't go get what John does, which is shoot threes, score from the mid post, rebound, play decent defense, and provide some rim protection. You can't go get a guy that does that for $15 million. Those guys don't exist. John's skill set is in the 20s of millions of dollars. We just need to accept that. And the issue is that if you go with what I think is a fair offer, giving John, you know, four for 96 or four for 100, if someone comes and offers him a max, you're going to have to match it. And there are teams that probably would be willing to offer John a max because they have the cap space and they just watch him be part of building a winning program here in Atlanta. So I'm just telling you, I don't think he's worth a max. But it could be coming, and if it doesn't, don't let your eyeballs fall out of your head. Now, regardless of whether or not we retain John, we talked about the fact that we need more bodies in our front court, more big bodies. The Hawks are blessed with a glut of really, really versatile, interchangeable, and good wing players that can all shoot. But they just don't have a lot of size. And so if Collins leaves, the calculus for how you replace him changes so I took the list of some of the power forwards and centers that are going to be available as unrestricted free agents this year and put them into a few different bins. So my first bin I called the stretch bigs. Those are guys that are big bodies that can shoot. So in that bin I put Kelly Olenek, Larry Markkinen, and you could also add Serge Ibaka into that bin, but I put them in a different one. So those are guys that are basically going to come off the bench, stroke a few threes, and help me grab a few boards. The next tier I, I called my bucket getters. These are guys that can go to work down to the low post. They don't really play a lot of defense. They might rebound, but they are in there to get buckets. And that's guys like Montrez Harrell, Enos Cantu, who actually is a very good rebounder, and DeMarcus Cousins, who when he plays extended minutes is also a good rebounder. So I put those guys in the category of bucket getters. My next tier I call rebounders. And these are guys that are just going to eat the glass and may provide a little bit of rim protection. And that's Andre Drummond, who, yes, he is a free agent, and Hassan Whiteside. Now, I don't know if Andre Drummond's willing to come be a backup, but Hassan Whiteside probably would be perfect for that role, playing 15, 18 minutes a game. And and he's someone that's not going to be super expensive. One of the great things about someone like DeMarcus Cousins or those stretch bigs also is that they can play alongside Nyeke Kongwu and Clint Capella because you could slide a Kongwu over to the four where he'd be really well suited to play if he has a guy that's playing next to him that can stretch the floor like a Cousins or even an Olenek. Then my fourth bucket I called the versatile bigs. And these are guys that are kind of tweeners. They're not really centers. They're not really power forward. They can play a little bit of both. But they can do a lot of things. So guys like Bobby Portis from the Bucks, who we just saw have a great series against the Hawks. Jeff Green, Blake Griffin, and Serge Ibaka. Now, now again, imagine a second unit where Serge Ibaka comes off as your stretch five playing alongside Onyeke Kongwu. That's a really solid front court defensively. To pair with Gallinari, who we know is not a great defender, and then Reddish and Herter. I mean, that is really solid. And with Blake Griffin, a guy that can step out on the floor and shoot threes at this point in his career and is also a good passer, imagine him playing small ball five alongside Okongwu, where Blake Griffin can step out of the three-point line on defense, and Okongwu can still be a vertical spacer as a lob threat. That just offers you a lot of options. And then the last bucket I had was guys that I referred to as big bodies. These are guys that are there to provide six fouls in the playoffs against guys like Joel Embiid and Giannis Antetokounmpo. And that is Robin Lopez, JaVale McGee, and Jared Allen, 
who is probably going to get a contract from somebody to be a starting center. But hey, if he does it, he can come on over here and be a rim-running, shot-blocking big for us. Yes, that very much overlaps with Yeke Kongwu, but I'd be willing to just put him out there and see if we can make it work just to get that extra body here. Some of those guys would be decent options to replace John Collins if he leaves. I wouldn't really want any of those guys to be starters, truthfully, though. And so more than likely, these guys are people that you'd be looking to target as bodies off your bench to provide extra size or depth depending on how you want to construct the rest of your team. So again, if you're looking for offense, you've got the guys in the stretch bigs category and the bucket getters. If you want just those big guys that can bang and provide a little bit of rim protection, that would be a guy like an Andre Drummond or Hassan Whiteside. Or if you want just another guy that can do a little bit of everything, that's the guys like the Portises, Jeff Greens, Griffins, and Ibakas that could also play alongside a Capella or an Okongwu. And I have to say this as an aside, I am super excited about a Yeke Kongwu. I think the comparisons to Bam Adebayo are actually pretty valid. I think some people call him Bam Adebayo light. And when you watched how strong he plays, how good his defensive instincts are, and his ability to finish and get off the floor vertically, it's not crazy to think that he might be another Capella or Adebayo-level player within the next two years, meaning that when Clint Capella finishes this contract with the Hawks, we may just let him walk and let Okongwu slide into his spot. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in that. But that's an aside. So we went really long today, but I wanted to cover a lot. And we'll come back and talk some more about free agency once it gets started with the Hawks, what they should do. But I would say this, Hawks fans. We're talking about how to build our team to get over the hump in the conference finals next year. When is the last time as a Hawks fan you could say you were talking about that at the end of a season? So Hawks fans, the future is bright. We have a mega supernova star in Trey Young. We have a great young core. We have our coach. And we have nothing but good days ahead of us for the Hawks Nation. This has been Dave Bethay with Tide Run Podcast. That's it for today. Thank you for listening.